0: I've always enjoyed logic. Reasoning, building arguments, and I think that's one of the reasons I've always enjoyed the writings of Paul is because he was a master at building arguments. Think back, even when I was a child, I didn't even know what logic was, but I would watch shows on TV with lawyers, and I thought, well, that looks like a fun job. I've told you I like to be right when I was, well, still do. Try to push that down, but I like to be right, and so it looked like lawyers got to argue for a living, and that looked like a lot of fun. Eric and I watched this show on television that is a law show, and the the main, one of the main characters, the the good guy lawyer, you know, he he often walks up to the witness stand with this big smile on his face, and you know, oh, good day, nice to meet you, and then he just attacks. It's like, isn't it true that, because of that, can't we say that, and he builds his case with facts. For logic to work, you have to have the facts on your side. You can have faulty logic, obviously, but for it to really work, to be convincing, you have to have the facts, and Paul does. And as he's building this argument to the Galatians of where they've gone astray, he is continuing to build. Again, he started with talking about his history, his conversion, his ministry, his independence from the other apostles. He continued that into a proposition of what justification is, justification is by faith alone at the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he reminds me of that, that lawyer that just, you foolish Galatians. He jabs them. And he begins to build this argument and as I said last week, he in the first part of chapter 3 last week, he started talking about who the true sons of Abraham are. Today, Paul is going to continue that God justifies Christians by faith alone by showing the logical fallacy of relying on the law. He's going to do this by continuing to show what God did through Abraham. Again, he's answering these these legalists, these Judaizers who are saying that Paul's gospel is great, but you need more. You need works, you need the law, in addition to Jesus, to be right with God. And So our big idea today is that logically faith and works cannot have the same result. Faith and works not have the same result. And Paul's going to hit on three key ideas for that. One is that God keeps his promises. Second, he's going to look at the purpose of the law and then conclude with our position in Christ. And we're in Galatians 3, we'll beginning in verse 15 and going through the end of the chapter begins in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise. So as we begin looking at this Again, I said our first point is that God keeps his promises. In verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So Paul here is turning towards this objection that when God gave the law, he ended faith alone. You see, the, there was a prevailing idea in Jewish theology that said, yes, Abraham believed, <coughs> excuse me, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, as we looked at last week. But later, God gave the law, and so while Abraham was saved by believing... We as Jews are now saved by the law. I'm going to mute myself for a minute. And so Paul here, as he's turning his logical argument, building this, he is focusing on that idea, that idea that would have been prevalent among the Judaizers' theology. So what does he mean here when he says in term I speak in term of human relations The Greek there is kata anthropos It really means through man What does he mean by that? I liked what one interpreter said He said that you could almost say here Let me tell you an analogy from everyday life This is something that you will understand because of what you have experienced in life. This isn't something from God. This is from through man, through your own experience, let me tell you this. And he reminds his readers here with this human analogy that even contracts made between people, between human beings, remains in force until they were fulfilled. I think it's important to note that we... We're not very trusting. I think a lot of that has gone away. Eric and I were looking for something to watch the other night, and I picked barnyard builders. It's these guys in West Virginia that tear down old barns and build new houses out of them. And They're there in West Virginia, and he builds this mock-up of this cabin that this guy wants, and the guy shows up to his yard, sees the mock-up, and says, yes, I will buy it. I have no idea how much, but this was not a cheap build. Instead of signing a contract, this good old West Virginia boy sticks out his hand and they shake on it. That was his contract. That is rare in our world today. Most of the time you have to get the lawyers involved and have 43 pages to say, yes, I want to buy that. But in Paul's day, when you read about the ancient Middle East and what the world was like there it was an honor society much like the Far East is today how in Japan and China and those nations in the Far East that your honor means everything staying true to your word would have been extremely important and so as Paul is writing this he's not speaking into a world like ours where you don't trust anyone's word he was speaking into a world where people would have your word was your bond and so he's saying here if, if you make a covenant with another person you wouldn't dare change it until it's fulfilled likewise the covenant God made with Abraham remains in force until God fulfills it completely The promises made to Abraham extended to his descendants as well as to him personally. And as Paul brings out here, they even extended to Christ. Now the promises, verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Paul doesn't mean here that Abraham fulfilled the Abraham, or that Christ fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant completely. But he's saying that through Christ, this descendant of Abraham, that God continued to fill the Abrahamic covenant, and specifically the promise of a Messiah. That promise that he made that the whole world would be blessed through him was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. I thought this was interesting here. The, The Hebrew word for seed or offspring is what you would call a collective singular like in English you would refer to sheep it could be one or it could be the whole flock and Paul here is pointing that in that promise it's specifically pointing towards the one, towards Jesus Christ I found this quote interesting it said the term seed not uncommonly denotes all the descendants of some great ancestor but it is not normally used of one person used in this way it points to the person as in some way outstanding the seed is not simply one descendant among many but the descendant and that's what Paul is saying here is that God kept his promise that Abraham who had not yet had a son his children were unnumberable his descendants but there was one there was the descendant the person of Jesus Christ and i found a a chart i thought was very applicable to this it said that in scripture there are four seeds of abraham that there is the natural seed of abraham which are the physical descendants Those who came from Abraham's line. And then there are the natural, spiritual seed of Abraham. Physical descendants who believed before Jesus in a coming Messiah, after Jesus in Jesus Christ. And then there are spiritual descendants of Abraham, all those who believe in Jesus for eternal life. And then as we just looked at, there is the ultimate seed of Abraham. The person of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Continue in verse 17, Paul says, What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise the timeline that he's working with here if you go back 430 years from Exodus 19 when the children of Israel had left Egypt and God gave them the law you go back to God's reiterating the promises of Abraham to Jacob at Beersheba Genesis 46 and then 430 years later The Israelites have been in bondage for 400 years. God has freed them, and then he gives them the law. And this inheritance that he is talking about here refers to what God promised to Abraham and his descendants, namely here, because he's speaking to Gentiles, would be the justification by faith that was implicit in this blessing to the world. Paul's saying that receiving this didn't require any obedience to the law, but God guaranteed to provide it. The law did not invalidate the covenant that God had made. Again, you look back at that prevailing Jewish theology that the law changed what God was doing. Paul's saying, no, they're separate covenants. God made the covenant with Abraham and he ratified it and he will keep it just like he made the Mosaic covenant they are separate our second point that we get to we get to verse 19 is the purpose of the law I think I skipped over 18 there for the For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. Though God has granted to Abraham, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So again, that covenant, that promise still holds true, no matter what happened in the future. Nothing was going to change that covenant, that contract. Just like in human terms, you don't come along two years later and go, well, I want to add to that. You don't add to it. You have to make a new one. So Paul then says in verse 19 as we begin to look at the purpose of the law. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So, in view of this argument that Paul has been going through, he's been repeatedly saying that the law does not justify. Last week we even looked at Paul, brought out that the law was a curse. And so, in light of all of that, he comes here to why the law then? Was there any value to the law? Paul says, yes, God had purposes for it. As we look at this with on account of transgressions, it almost seems like the transgressions caused God to give the law, but the Greek here points more towards purpose, that God had a purpose in giving the law. It's purpose, not cause. It is interesting if you read through the account In the Old Testament of the law being given at Sinai that there is no account there of the angels bringing the law to man but this was something that was well known in the Jewish oral tradition and Paul writing that here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit verifies that that was true says it was given by the agency of a mediator. This go-between. As you read through the the giving of the law and through the story of the children of Israel as they leave Egypt, Moses was this mediator between God and the people of Israel. When God came, he specifically told Moses to, to not let the people go beyond a certain place or they would perish but Moses was able to go up on the mountain and see God and receive the law and take it back to the people continues in verse 20 now a mediator is not for one party only whereas God is only one there are a lot of interpretations for this little verse I think the best one is that Paul is saying here that you need a mediator if you have two parties that are each responsible for doing something. You have one person that's a neutral person in the middle keeping both sides accountable. But a mediator is not necessary when the covenant is what you would call unilateral, when it's all one-sided. And so God who is one in the Abrahamic covenant it's all on him when you read the Abrahamic covenant God had Abraham cut these animals in two and then this deep sleep falls on on him and he sees a vision of a torch of God passing through the carcasses at that time if two kings were to make a peace treaty or a covenant They would have cut the animals in two and they would have passed through them together signifying that they were both responsible. But in the Abrahamic covenant, it was on God alone to keep his promises. Whereas in the Mosaic covenant, it was two-sided. God said, I will do this for you, but you need to do this. The children of Israel had, they had to hold up their end of the bargain to expect the blessings from God whereas Abraham it was all on God continue in verse 21 says is the law then contrary to the promises of God may it never be for if a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law so do the law and promises contradict each other never this may it never be is very the Greek there is it's used I think 15 times in the New Testament and 14 of those are by Paul probably one of the most famous is Romans 6 should we continue in sin that may that grace may abound may it never be it means far from it some translations use God forbid there's an extremely strong negative they don't contradict each other God just made them for different purposes God works in ways, and he shows us what he's doing, and he's shown us that there was a purpose for the law and a purpose for the promises. And the purpose for the law was never to provide justification. Again, as Paul said in chapter 2, if you're looking at the law to justify you, then Jesus Christ died in vain was never the point of the law. The law was was there. It was supposed to work like a mirror to show you the sinner you were. I read one quote this week. It was talking about how the law, how it was given to the children of Israel right after they left Egypt, it was very similar to giving them the instructions to make bricks with no hay. There was no way they could keep it. And so it was supposed to show them that they needed something else. And yet, as we saw clearly when we were going through Matthew, they had twisted that and perverted it into this idea that this makes us better than everyone else, and I keep this, and I we can always compare ourselves to other people and think that we're better than they are. But when you compare yourself to God, when you compare yourself to his perfect righteousness, which the law brings out, then you know you need help. When you realize you cannot save yourself, you should be open to receiving salvation. And yet these Judaizers who are plugging this church in Galatia are clinging to that mindset like the Pharisees we looked at in Matthew, that that loved the law because it made them feel good about themselves and better than others. But that was the whole opposite point of why God gave it. it. Continues in 23, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. So in Paul's logic here, before faith equals before Jesus justification has always been through faith when he's saying before faith it was before that promise was fulfilled in Jesus, it was before we had the object of our faith and when he says we here he is pointing towards the nation of Israel these Judaizers are trying to draw them into becoming Jews because they believe that's the only way to God. And so as Paul here is building on this argument of what God did and promised to Abraham, he is showing the history of the nation of Israel. He says they were under custody and then later they were confined. The law kept Israel set apart from the nations around it really this is Paul beginning to picture Israel as a child which he continues in verse 24 therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith our tutor In Paul's day, it was common for children between the ages of 6 and 13 or so to be under the care of what was called a pedagogue, or what we would refer to as a tutor. The pedagogue was there to protect them from bad influences and to teach them, and they demanded their obedience. The idea here is of a harsh, demanding, Tutor. I think I may have told this story before, but I failed one class in high school. Algebra one. Math throughout elementary school and junior high, I could do it all in my head. Like it was just it came so easy to me. And then all of a sudden they threw letters and other stuff in there and it just went right by me. And so instead of retaking it my sophomore year or taking it in summer school, my dad arranged for his friend to privately tutor me, and the school gave me credit for it. And so every day throughout, I think for like two months of my summer break, I had to go sit in a schoolroom at this other gentleman's school, and he would tutor me. And it was harsh. There was no there was no room for slacking off, it was one-on-one, and I got it, but it certainly wasn't easy, it wasn't the gentle way to get there, and that's what Paul is pointing at here, that, that Israel, like a child who was under confinement, was given this tutor, this pedagogue of the law, to guide it to Jesus to its need for Jesus. He's pointing them to their need for Christ. This law was this disciplinarian for the nation of Israel, pointing them to Christ. However, as he continues into our third section here, looking at our position in Christ, we see that that need for assistance and for Israel for their separation ended when Christ came third point our position in Christ beginning in verse 25 but now that faith has come we are no longer under a tutor for you, all, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus so again here when he says now that faith has come he says now that we have the object of our faith now that Jesus Christ has come we are no longer under a tutor we are no longer children. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It is faith in Christ Jesus that makes you a son of God. It wasn't the law. it was The law was pointing towards this. And now that you have believed, you are God's son. Verse 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves... With Christ. So, what unites us to Jesus Christ is the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that takes place at the moment we are saved. And water baptism, I like to say that it makes visible the invisible. It's not that it somehow magically unites us to Christ, that was already done at the moment you believed but you're dramatizing what has happened. You are making visible the invisible. What does he mean here by when he says that you have clothed yourself with Christ? He's again pointing towards maturity, to, to growing out of the need for a tutor. When Roman male children reached son status, when they reached a certain age, their fathers would give them a special toga that would signify that their status had changed from a child to an adult son and so when Paul says you have clothed yourself with Christ he is pointing to our our status of having moved past this need for the law for the tutor we have clothed ourselves with Christ In verse 28 there is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is this is a huge shift. The study I'm doing on Ephesians on Wednesday nights, the author of the book I'm using points to the racial difference between. Jews and Gentiles as being the greatest divide in the history of the world so we looked at the law confined the Jews it set them aside they were different than everyone else around them they didn't want to be like them and no one else wanted to be like the Jews so we have seen even in the last hundred years They have continued to be persecuted, looked down upon, and hated. But Paul is saying that something different has happened now, that there is neither Jew or Greek. Sometimes he will focus on some of the other things there, but he starts with the biggest one possible. The point is that in Jesus, we have unity. We are all of equal value because obviously physically people are still Jews or Gentiles slaves are free, male or female but his point was that within the body of Christ we all have the same relationship to God and we are all of equal value to God in the Old Testament Gentiles, slaves, and women did not enjoy the same access to God as Israel's, in Israel's formal worship As did those who were Jewish and male and free. Anyone could have trusted God for salvation, but to enjoy practicing in the temple, to enjoy privileges. If you were to be a priest in Israel, you had to be from a certain tribe, and to be a male, and to obviously be Jewish. But now in the church, we are all priests. Paul is again emphasizing this unity that if we are all equal that there's nothing dividing us that as he brings out so clearly in Ephesians that we are all unified together turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 11, Paul says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you to... Did I start at the right place? Jump to 13. Therefore I ask... Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, "...therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. I believe when we talked about the cleansing of the temple as we were nearing the end of Matthew, we talked about that there was this court of the Gentiles that anyone could enter into, and that was probably where the money changers were that Jesus threw out and where he would probably often preach to the crowds but there was a dividing wall that would separate where anyone could be and where only the Jews could be and they would kill you if you were a Gentile and you went past where you were supposed to but Paul says there in Ephesians that Jesus Christ broke down that wall that he broke down that enormous racial divide and that he has made us all one, that we have unity in that, that we as Gentiles who were once so far from God without hope, as Paul said, that because of what Jesus did, we have the same hope that the Jews had for all those generations of a Messiah, someone who would make us right with God. back in Galatians Paul concludes with and if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise so those joined to Christ by faith become spiritual descendants of Abraham or as we looked at the the seed of Abraham his offspring that there were spiritual descendants all who believe spiritual descendants and they are beneficiaries of some of God's promises namely the promise of the Messiah this does not mean that Christians become Jews, Christians are Christians but in Christ we are the seed of Abraham as he said in verse 16 God promised some things to all the physical descendants of Abraham in Genesis and he promised other things to the believers in that group Paul brings out in Romans 9. And he promised still other things to the spiritual seed of Abraham to who were not Jews, as he has here in Galatians 3. But it's important to distinguish between these groups. We can't say that we're all the same. That if you read descendants of Abraham here, that because you've believed you're a descendant of Abraham, that does not mean that I get the promise of the Holy Land. That was a promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants. One example of a group that commonly lumps everyone together is millennials that conclude that Gentile believers inherit all the promises along with the believing remnant of Israel, thus eliminating any kind of future for the nation of Israel one quote this week it said that throughout the whole vast earth the lord recognizes one and only one nation as his own namely the nation of believers that idea is taking it's taking those specific promises of god to abraham and nullifying it saying well no it didn't work out for them and so now god god gives those promises to me that's not how it works and in the context of Paul's argument here against the law being necessary for eternal life that doesn't fit when you look at neither Jew nor Greek you look at here at us all who have believed have become his descendants we're heirs of a specific promise that the whole world will be blessed through Abraham and we are as we celebrated through communion today we are heirs that promise that having believed, we become his spiritual descendants because we have eternal life through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I'm running out of time here, but turn with me to Romans 11. because we're running low on time, I'll just cut it down to two verses here. But this whole chapter, Paul's making the point that God's not done with Israel. He says in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, another one of his sayings there, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, and then jump to verse 17 but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker of them which the them of the rich root of the olive tree so Paul there is pointing to I have two black thumbs I could never do this but to people who are good with plants you can take one branch and graft it onto another tree and that's What Paul is saying that God has done is when he's brought us Gentiles in, he has grafted us into the olive tree. And then verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And he continues about God's promises to Israel. God isn't done with them. But because of Israel's rejection of their Messiah and God's opening up what he has done to the Gentiles, we are now spiritual descendants of Abraham. So we we see, again, that logically, the faith and works don't have the same result. Again, by continuing to elaborate on what God did for Abraham, we see the beauty of God's plan of salvation. For the world. That it wasn't just for the Jews, it wasn't for these this people that he had set apart. And that's what the law did. It was it was a promise made to Abraham for the whole world. And because we saw the purpose of the law was not to bring righteousness, obviously, or Jesus wouldn't have had to die then brought us to our position in Christ that we are we are of immense value for God because of what Jesus did on the cross he would only give your life for something that you put extreme value in and Jesus did that for each and every one of us And so it doesn't matter our race or gender doesn't matter what our standing in society is. What matters is that we have believed, and God finds immense value in that. And again, that's what we need to focus on.